When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion, probably the only podcast which mixes cricket and horse racing. With me, your host, Stephen Wallace. On today's show, we are concentrating on the IPL the Indian Premier League, for the first time, with James Pamant, the specialist fielding coach of the Mumbai Indians, one of the most famous teams in the cricketing world. In a wide-ranging interview featuring listeners' questions, one of the world's leading fielding coaches discusses the crucial role that fielding now plays in the modern game. Hello, James. Thanks for joining me on the Paddock and the Pavilion from Mount Monganui. Yep, all the way from New Zealand. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, to make your acquaintance, Stephen, and and be with you here on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. Well, you live in a very fantastic area to, of New Zealand. I, I was fortunate to go to the uh, November nineteen England versus versus New Zealand Test match. We forget about the result, but it's a glorious ground to watch cricket from. Yeah, it is a lovely ground. It's it's certainly evolved over the last ten fifteen years. Uh, I used to play club cricket on the old Mount Monganui ground, the Blake Park Oval, as it used to be called. But uh, we're very blessed to have the facilities that we've got now down there at Mount Monganui. It's it's an outstanding international ground, and and the services around it as well are, are first class. So I tend to find that a lot of high performance camps are held here, and and it's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, I've lived here since 1996, so yeah, I consider myself very blessed. So have you been up the mount lately then? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's only a few days ago. It's it's about a 12-kilometre bike ride from where I live down to the base of the mount, and, and I tend to ride my bike down there, go up and round a couple of times, and then jump my comp on my bike and head home. So once again, it's just the natural environment. We're blessed, and occasionally when it gets a little bit warmer, I'll I'll jump in the ocean at the bottom of the mount and, and then treadly home. So, yeah, it's a lovely environment. I didn't jump in the ocean, but I did did go up the mount with a friend of mine, a cricketing friend, Brendan Boyce. I'll get his name in there. Um, it's a lot easier coming down than going up. 
<laughs> it is. It's it's not the highest of walks. I think it's only about three hundred and fifty meters above sea level, but uh, there is a lot of steps. And uh, yeah, I guess when you're there for a social time, like I'm sure you were, you were probably working off a few beers rather than maintaining your fitness. Well, let's get on to uh, your your life now. Um, a quiet time for you at the moment. You you sort of uh, recharging batteries. Yes, absolutely. It's nice to have a quiet time. I was very busy from the start of the year. Uh, SA20 in South Africa and, and then IPL shortly after that. And then a short break before I headed across to the new uh, T20 competition, the Major League Cricket in America. So busy for five months out of the first seventh month, seven months of this year. But yeah, a little bit of downtime now and, and a bit of uh, recharging of the batteries before I uh, look forward to going again in, in January. So, yeah, enjoying my time at home. Uh, I guess the family make big sacrifices when you do travel away and, and follow your passion. So it's nice to be home spending time with the family. Yeah, you must spend a lot of time away from home. Uh, yes, I have done uh, in recent years. Since obviously I took the role with Mumbai in 2017. Uh, you do spend quite a bit of time away from home, but it, it sort of equals off a little bit because when you're at home, you know, you're generally at home and, and you're just sort of interacting with the family. Whereas previously, in my previous role with Northern Districts as a head coach, that, you know, it was 365 days a year. So sometimes even when you're at home, you might be away somewhere or you, you're thinking about what's coming up next. So there's some real clear times where I'm, I'm having downtime now. So I've got a nice balance in my life. Very fortunate. Well, you're a long way from where you came from originally. We were joking about your accent to off air. And you were born in Huddersfield in 1968. And you did play for, I was looking up, you did play for Yorkshire at junior levels. Yes. Yeah. Came right through the age groups. Uh, uh, I was born in Huddersfield, as you say, and, and my family, at a very early age, I moved up to a small village called Emily, which is a mining village between Wakefield, Huddersfield and Barnsley. So it was a fantastic environment to be brought up in. Uh, my family were passionate football and cricket people, so I was just immersed in sport from, you know, I guess, as long as I can remember, you know, as soon as I could walk and, and throw, I was, you know, playing cricket and in the winter, obviously, playing football. So, yeah, my roots were definitely in Yorkshire. Uh, played for the under-13s at Yorkshire, played for under-15s and played for the under-19s that, that we won the national championship in 87, I think it was, down at the Parks in Oxford. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed that youth cricket and, and it gave me a good grounding, but... Uh, was never deemed good enough, unfortunately, to represent the White Rose, which is something I was definitely passionate about, but never got the opportunity, but uh, didn't let it hold me back. So when and why did you finish up in New Zealand? I Well, I travelled to New Zealand in 88, I guess, you know, as, as a young cricketer wanting to, to further my development and play more cricket, I, I took an opportunity to travel to New Zealand in 88 and uh, played two seasons down in the Wellington competition, the Wellington slash Hutt Valley competition for a club called Nine Eye Old Boys. While I was down in Wellington, I, I met my future wife, as she was at that point in time, and she still is my wife at the moment, Cecilia. So and I'm sure hopefully she will be for the rest of my life, I say at the moment. Uh, we've been married for over 30 years. So, yeah, uh, New Zealand sort of became our home eventually. I was one of those cricketers that was travelling backwards and forwards, summer to summer, uh, moved up to Auckland. I got a contract with a cricket club in the centre of Auckland called Grafton United. 
the standard was a lot better than what I'd been playing down in Wellington, a lot more challenging, and the responsibilities of being a professional with that club uh, really helped my game considerably. And having secured New Zealand residency, uh, I was invited to uh, to play for Auckland in 1993. And over the next three years, I played, uh, I think, 50 games, so just short of 50 games for Auckland in, in the different formats, the two formats as it was back in those days. Uh, but it was just an amateur game. Uh, it wasn't a professional game, so there was no money to be made from it. And and my wife and I would started a family, so it came time that you know you had to concentrate on bringing a few dollars in rather than pursuing you know I guess which was the love of the game, but uh, it wasn't paying the bills. So I decided to leave first class cricket with Auckland and actually moved down to Mount Monganui in 1996 and and took up a contract to play National League football with Mount Monganui and, and take a, an occupation on the side as well, which uh, which was exciting because I'd always been a passionate footballer coming through the youth ranks as well and, and had some opportunities at some professional clubs uh, as I was sort of going through those youth grades. Uh, yeah, managed to have a couple of, couple of uh, strings to my bow, which have, have always helped me make good decisions. Well, you filled a few gaps in there about the football. I just wanted to go back to the uh, the cricket. You've had three seasons with with Auckland. Uh, you made your first class debut in December '93 against Canterbury, and you were playing with Matt Horn and Adam Perore, who were both playing for Auckland. And also, something I didn't know until I did the research: you were playing with Max O'Dowd's father in that game as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two ginger nuts playing together, Alex uh, Alex O'Dowd. Yeah, it was a good man from the Takapuna Cricket Club. That's right. I had a close relationship with Matt Horn and still do. He, he was a groomsman when I got married. Matthew came and played a season at Lassells Hall, which is my club in, in Yorkshire. Uh, so he was the one, along with another guy, who, who got me to go and play at Grafton United. So, yeah, a close relationship with Matthew. And, and ironically as well, the guy who made his debut for Canterbury on that very same day was Gary Stead, who's gone on and and become a very good cricket coach initially for Canterbury, but but now he's doing a fantastic job with the New Zealand team, the Black Caps. So, yeah, it seems like a long time ago, uh, and there was a lot of grass on that wicket, I seem to remember, at, uh, at Dudley Park in Rangiora, and I'm not sure if the game even lasted two days, but, you know, it was, it was I guess, a, a something that ticked off that I'd always wanted to do, and, and that was become a first-class cricketer. And you also played a game against the Pakistan touring side in... 1994. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was fortunate to play against Pakistan. Uh, didn't get too many runs. Uh, there's a couple of funny stories coming out of that one as well, which I've told on previous podcasts. And I played against the West Indies as well in uh, in in a, in a tour game that uh, I guess helped launch one of their tours here. It might have been 95 or 96. So, yeah, played played a couple of international teams and. And my list A debut, I guess, was probably my, my family's moment down in Wellington, where uh, uh, obviously a, a lot of friends who I'd played with at 9-9 Cricket Club were in attendance that day and managed to score 100 on my list A debut against Wellington in a game that we won. So that was exciting. What were you doing also outside of football, though? Were you Was that professional football contract? Uh, it was semi-professional, uh, yep, so... When I moved down here to Mount Monganui, I uh, I got a job at the wharf. There was a, an Australian company called BHP, 
They had some involvement with our football clubs. Uh, they got me a job at BHP. They used to transfer steel all around the world. Used to, the steel used to come in from the Glenbrook Mill in South Auckland into the port at Mount Monganea, and then we used to put it on the ships and send it all around the world. So I was I was initially working in there uh, until I got myself established. And I'd done a little bit of trade work back in the UK on the times when I used to go back for the summer. And uh, my trade was painting and decorating. So I ended up painting and decorating for oh, nearly 10 years, actually, before I went into high-performance football coaching. So how did you yeah. then go from high-performance football coaching then to, to coaching at cricket? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I think I probably had something like a, you know, maybe a 25-year playing career from being a young fella to mid-30s. But I'd always coach, uh, you know, I'm 55 now, so I've probably been coaching for over 40 years. Every every time, you know, I took the opportunity to, to coach a team. So the year after I left the under-13s, I went back and coached the under-11s and, and things like that. You know, when, when I'd finished playing under-17s cricket, I was back coaching under-15s. So I'd always coached uh, while I was playing football, uh, here in Mount Monganui, I was coaching cricket through the summer months. I was coaching football. The youngsters coming through, that the youth grades, representative football. And I got an opportunity in 2006 to uh, to work for New Zealand Football. They'd identified some work that I'd been doing with the youngsters around this region. Uh, a number of young players were, were developed to international level and, and have since gone on and, and forged professional careers in Europe. So... New Zealand football offered me a job. Uh, the contract was for a year and uh, I saw out that one-year contract. And after that, uh, New Zealand cricket came and, and offered me a, a role to uh, coach cricket as well. So I guess from being a painter and decorator and coaching part-time, then all of a sudden I'm then a, I'm a professional coach and, and I'm, I'm coaching mainly in the youth grades initially. But uh, that's where my passion really lies is development. And, and from there, I, I was very fortunate to work with some very talented young cricketers coming through this Bay of Plenty region. Uh, we had guys like Trent Bolt and, and Kane Williamson came through this region. Following on from those guys, we had a number of young guys who've gone on and forged very good first-class careers, Joel Cowder, Sean Davey, Brett Hampton. And, and I worked closely with those guys in this particular region of Bay of Plenty before I actually started uh, branching out and coaching in Northern Districts region, which is you know a, a wider region. So that's how it all got started, really. And fitness has obviously been very key to your progression. You've always been someone who liked keeping fit. Yeah, well, I think it just comes part and parcel, really, with you know being a multi multi sportsman, and you know I've, I've always been an advocate uh, of youngsters playing multiple sports. So, you know, I think I, I, as I was coaching, uh, especially the high-performance football stuff, there was a big, big cry on sports specialisation from an early age. And I was somebody who sort of would kick back to that and say, look, I don't, I don't think we can ask youngsters to play football 12 months of the year. I don't think it's very good for them. Uh, and, and, you know, I was always an advocate of, of multiple sports and, and Kiwi kids as well. I think, you know, they revel in that multi-sport environment. Uh, naturally, it is an outdoor area, uh, lots of outdoor sports, lots of different sports. And, uh, yeah, I think fitness is just part and parcel of, you know, being active, really. And being multi-sport, you think uh, youngsters learn different skills as well? 
Oh, there's there's no doubt about it. I think each each different sport complements, you know, perhaps what might become their main sport. Uh, you look at many multi-sport athletes who, who youngsters, you know, played different sports and then went on to, I guess, master one sport to a very high level. You know, many of them will refer back to when they were multi-sport athletes and the benefits that they had around uh, not only the fitness side of it, the agility side of it and the athletic side of it, but, you know, the motor neuron skills, the hand-to-eye coordination that's the, that go with having a multi-sport background is uh, is something that I, I will always encourage. And, and, yeah, unless somebody can tell me convincingly that, you know, there is only one way, then, yeah, I'll always argue that multi-sports is the way to go for young kids. You also coached the uh, United States for a short period. I did, Stephen. Yeah, 2019. Uh, I, I got an opportunity to go and work with them uh, to help with their fielding initially. They had a big tournament coming up in Bermuda, which they were hoping to qualify for the T20 qualifiers, which were held in uh, they were held in Dubai, I think. But we had to go, go through Bermuda first and qualify through the Americas. But unfortunately, it didn't go as well as what everybody had hoped. And they didn't qualify. Bermuda and Canada qualified through those qualifiers. So uh, I'd only had a short association with American cricket just through that tournament. And and uh, they sought some feedback from me and I gave them some ideas moving forward. And they basically said, well, can you can you hold the baby until we get a little bit more organised? And so I, I did a couple of series for them. Uh, they were also qualifying for the current World Cup that uh, – is just underway now. Uh, that started way back in 2019 with uh, what they call the Division Two series, and, and I had some great fun working with some of those guys through initial. I think the first three series, and uh, we had some good success in the first two, but then got undone a little bit in Nepal, where Nepal and Oman were a little bit too good for us in the conditions that presented over in uh, Kathmandu. But yeah, that that was an enjoyable time. Uh, I was contracted to Mumbai Indians, so. I was very fortunate that Mumbai Indians let me, uh, you know, have that time helping the American crew at, uh, through those series. But ultimately, I was always going to go back and, and prepare for, uh, I think it was the 2020 uh, IPL that got deferred, actually, obviously, because the, the pandemic hit. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed my time with the American boys, and it was nice to reconnect with some of them as well uh, in the recent MLC uh, series in America. You mentioned Mumbai Indians. I think you started there, was it 2017, 2018? 2017, I, I signed to, to Mumbai, yeah, and I'm still there. So I've I've thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And, yeah, I, I initially went there as, as the fielding coach uh, and, and I've done some scouting for them in, in recent years and, and I've done some development coaching, taking some young teams away under the Reliance umbrella and, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time with with Mumbai Indians. It's a, it's an outstanding organisation. Uh, they strive to to get better year after year, and and obviously they strive to win as well. So the, their principles fit very well with my principles, and yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time there with them. Hard act to follow. You you were succeeding Jonty Rhodes. Well, that's right. I mean, if we're talking about world-class fielders, then there's been none better than John T. But uh, I never actually saw him coach, so I'm not sure how good his coaching was. But, uh, you know, I, I came with my own set of philosophies and my own principles. And and they'd obviously witnessed some of the work that my teams had done prior to 
recruiting me. So, yeah, uh, I've, I've thought, like I said, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time. And, and each year I try and make sure I'm improving and being relevant and, and also engaging with the new players that come into that organisation. So building relationships with the players and trying to get an understanding of what they know and where they want to take their games in relation to their fielding skills is something that I really pride myself on. So it's been stimulating year after year. It's not just copy and paste. There's always a new, uh, there's always a new, uh, I guess, script to be written each year. It must be when you're working with Rohit Sharma, Kieran Pollard, Jasper Brumrah, all these world stars. Mm. How intense is it working for Mumbai Indians? Uh, well, you, I mean, you're employed to do your job and you're employed to do your job to a very high level. So I guess I've been very fortunate. I've only worked with two head coaches while I've been there. So uh, my role in particular, it's understanding what the organisation wants from you and then it's understanding what the head coach wants from you. And, and you build those relationships and they get a feel for what you like to do and how you like to do it. And then it's about building relationship with players and, and just working out what is the best plan for the team, game in, game out, to make sure we're organised and we're energetic and we, we carry out, you know, our, our principle to a very high high level, skill level. Uh, and then, yeah, just, just how we review and, and how we work with individuals is, is very much, you know, on a case-by-case basis. So it's been great to get to know some of those players that are obviously very renowned at the top of T20 cricket uh, around the world and, and just to pick their brains at times and, and hear their thoughts and, and just engender some discussions. I, I've really enjoyed my relationship with Kieran Pollard. Kieran Pollard, he's, he's obviously a brilliant fielder, uh, but he's also a fantastic human being as well. And he loves the game of cricket and, and he loves to see his teammates develop around him as well. So, you know, we, we're very alike on that. We like to develop individuals and, and obviously we like to talk cricket. So that that's one of the... That's one of the relationships I'll I'll take away with me when all this finishes. Well, uh, the relationship I've had with Polly is is something that I really treasure. And is the relationship with the coach and the other coaches very important when you're in a franchise environment? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it's imperative. And 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 one thing about Mumbai Indians is we've been very stable with our coaching crew. Uh, it hasn't changed much at all. Uh, Mahela was our head coach and he's now stepped into a, a director of cricket role and, and Mark Boucher came in last year. Uh, but predominantly, uh, all the other positions have, have been very similar. Uh, Kieran's now stepped into the batting role. Uh, so there's hardly been any changes. And I think that's been a reason why we've had uh, so much success and we've been very competitive in, in the time that I've been there and obviously previous to my time there as well. The consistency aspect and and I guess the process-driven uh, nature of how they go about things is, is something that stood them in good stead. I saw a clip on YouTube when you said that the one thing you demand of the players is is energy. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of non-negotiable really in a 2020 environment. If you, you, know, if you can't... Uh, if you can't get energy from your group for 20 overs, then you're going to be struggling. And there's times where, you know, back-to-back games, travel, train, play, nature of IPL, it's, it is physically taxing. So, you know, deep digging deep into those energy reserves is, is something that can be mentally very, very taxing. So, you know, we, we try and promote it the whole time. Uh, 
mistakes will happen and you know and you encourage individuals to to push the boundaries and sometimes that creates mistakes but you know one thing it's very hard to reflect on at the end of the game is you know if if uh, we're saying that we're lacking in energy or if the captain tells me that the group were lacking in energy then that's something I take quite personally because you know you have to try and make sure that you've stimulated everybody to the point where they they can give everything while they're out together in the park you know despite you know you might be under the pump or you might be behind the game you know warm ball changes a, a t20 fixture quite often so you know the, the energy aspect is is really important to us and i'm sure it is to other groups as well well five-time winners uh, of the ipo you must love working in india yeah yeah it's i mean it was a dream it was a dream of mine to go and experience cricket in india uh and it was something that you know i thought maybe it passed me by but uh even though i was in my infancy uh, as a head coach the the northern districts group that i was coaching we won the domestic tournament uh here in new zealand in in 2013-14 and that gave us an opportunity to go to the champions league it was the last champions league they ever held actually and, uh, and it was a great opportunity for a group of young men that had sort of grown together. Uh, we had very much a homegrown team with a with a couple of overseas veterans, really, that were guiding us. So to take that group to India was was a real precious moment in all our careers. And and quite often, you know, when we're all together, that the Kane Williamson, the Tramp Bowl, Tim Southey was on that trip, B.J. Watlin, Daniel Flynn, Ish Saudi, Daryl Mitchell, Scott Kugeline, Mitchell Santner. You know, we, we, we sort of talk about that tournament as being a real starting point for a lot of our careers, obviously my coaching career and, and their playing careers. We, you know, we had such a good time uh, and we did reasonably well as well. We, we were very competitive. We beat Mumbai Indians in that, uh, in that series as well. So it was a real catalyst for a lot of us experience in India for the first time and, and I guess getting that bug of, of potentially what IPL might be like, but uh it was a precious time for all of us. And, uh, yeah, it was just a thrill for me personally because I'd always wanted to go and experience cricket in India. And, and obviously, culturally, you know, the place is amazing. It sort of assaults your senses, as they say, and, you know, and you, you really have to have your wits about you and, and there's just so much to see and do. And, yeah, it, it's a fantastic environment to be in. Well, before I, I've got some questions about fielding, I just wanted to briefly talk about franchise cricket because you're now working for MI Cape Town and MI New York where you won the the major league cricket uh, is it now one big big family yeah one family was i guess our trademark that we've always always utilized but now we've we've got five teams now because obviously the, the three teams there that you mentioned that I've worked for this year but we also have the ladies team that won the inaugural uh, women's IPL as well, which was a real thrill to be there and watch those guys. I, I worked quite closely with Lydia Greenway, who was the who was the women's fielding coach leading into the tournament, uh, and that was nice to to meet her and and get to know her. and And then obviously we've got a team in the Emirates as well. So it is one big family that's uh, that's five teams strong, and uh, yeah, they they're very. Passionate, uh, the owners of Mumbai Indians about doing their bit for spreading the word, and and uh, and equally they want all those teams to do well as they can. What were your thoughts on the the tournament in South Africa and um, and America? 
Uh, the, 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 the SAT 20 was, was outstanding. Uh, I think it's a tournament that the country like South Africa has been crying out for, for a while. Uh, I know they'd had a couple of attempts that, that hadn't quite met the mark that they'd hoped to, but with potentially the, the involvement of the IPL franchises and the way it was structured, it was outstanding. You know, we played in front of capacity crowds, passionate crowds as, as well. And and I know from a, the players' point of view, talking to the local players, they they just loved it. They lapped it up. The quality of the overseas players was was very high, so that the games were good, the standard was good, and yeah, I I, I love my time there. We we didn't do very well actually. We we had a very strong team, but we just didn't quite click, uh, especially towards the back end of the tournament. We didn't quite get it going, and and we finished well down the ladder. We did make the playoffs, but. That didn't, uh, you know, take away from the enjoyment that I had uh, while I was there. It was it was outstanding, and I'm really looking forward to going back there. And equally, uh, the Major League Cricket Tournament in the States, having been there in 2019, and and I guess had a feel for how American cricket was going, and and obviously with the relationship with uh, cricket enterprises on the side and the U.S. cricket. You're not quite sure, and and there was a few other people as well who'd been in and around USA cricket. We were all hoping that things would come together and it would be a good tournament, and the quality of players that they'd attracted there would be engaged. and 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 yeah, it was just outstanding. They did an amazing amount of work. The, the two grounds that they utilised were were very good in terms of how they presented it. Uh, the wickets were good. And uh, and the crowds rolled up as well, especially for the big games. So uh, I think it was an outstanding start and something that they'll build on. And, and I hope that it only continues to get better. With the World Cup staging matches in America, it's really the last frontier, isn't it? Um, USA cricket. Oh, it's yeah, but there's so much cricket played in the US, you know, which I guess surprises everybody who hasn't looked into it too deeply. Uh, with the immigrant population. Uh, around the states, and and I do recall that I think it was 2019 that the second largest amounts of social media hits came from North America. India was obviously number one, then then North America was the second with the social media hits. So there's a great following for cricket. There's a lot of cricket being played, but and I guess it's just trying to make sure it's in a structured manner that you know the people who want to progress towards high performance, there is a pathway for them there. And I think that with the major league cricket and then the minor league cricket and then the regional associations being formed, then, you know, it, it will be hopefully a, an area where some very good high-performing cricketers start to come out, you know, and, and hopefully some naturalised or sort of born and bred Americans rather than, I guess, the immigrants that have come from the Caribbean islands or or they've come from Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, or the South Asian countries. And even there's a number of Australians who have got American passports as well. So it, it'll be great to see Americans born and bred, you know, starting to progress through those high-performance ranks. Where do you see franchise cricket going? Is there too much now? Is it seriously affecting international cricket? Well, I think everything evolves, Stephen, and it's, it's probably, yeah, it's probably something that I've not felt thought too deeply about really uh, and I'm sure that we all love test cricket you know and we would all like to see the integrity of test cricket remain 
you know, the bilateral series and the pinnacle series, as they call them, you know, the Ashes and the, the big series, I think they'll always be around because I think players really enjoy playing in those series and players love playing test cricket. So, but, you know, the, the franchise tournaments and, and the, we just talked about the SAT20, the MLC, great competitions, great crowds, you know, good cricket. Uh, High-performance players want to play in exciting games of cricket. They don't want to feel like they're playing in, oh, just another series, a bilateral series. So I think they'll, I think they'll find a balance because I think the people who are making the decisions Yes, I'm sure they want to make their money, and everybody does in every field that they work in, but I'm sure that the integrity of cricket is at their heart as well. And that's the feeling I get when I talk to people who make decisions. I'm not a decision maker. I'm just a participant at this stage. Uh, but I think there's there's a balance for uh, for all of it to continue. Well, thanks for that. Let's just move on to fielding and a few questions I've got. Um, first question is, you must... Of love fielding from the first day you ever played cricket? I did. I, I, see, I only want to be involved in every ball. <laughs> I used to try and work out where's he going to hit this ball. If I wasn't bowling, where's he going to hit this ball? And I'm going to go and stand there. So I guess it's just that love of wanting to be involved in every ball. Uh, I explained I was a football player previously. I was a goalkeeper. So I loved diving around. So you know, my mum used to, you know, used to go crazy every Saturday night when I came home that my whites used to be blacker, you know, than, than a pair of black trousers. So she used to have to be scrubbing with them with nappy sand and wonder soap to try and get them clean. So I was always somebody who just wanted to be involved in every ball. Uh, obviously, I'm, being a goalkeeper, I understand the principles of diving. So it, from going from a player to a coach, I, I had some key insights, I guess, in some areas which are still, I guess, a little bit foreign, even to many fielding coaches now, the principles around diving. So, yeah, uh, from being somebody who wanted to be involved in every ball to then going on to coaching, I guess it, it came sort of naturally to me. But has T20 cricket really changed fielding? Uh, yes and no. I think I think holistically it has. But we can't forget that before T20 cricket, there were still some brilliant fielders who took it upon themselves, you know, like me, in and I guess lower levels, is to want to be involved in every ball, to want to make a play by being, you know, in the field, being energetic, being enthusiastic, enthusiastic, having high anticipation. And, and I used to remember going to places like Headingley and Trent Bridge and watching people like Derek Randall. Uh, I didn't see Colin Bland, but then quite quickly people would talk to me about Colin Bland, who was a South African who was a brilliant fielder. I did see Clive Lloyd. I did see Viv Richards. Those guys wouldn't look out of place in modern-day cricket. They were brilliant fielders with great skills. I think, holistically, the demands have just got higher because there's no hiding places anymore. Players, batsmen play 360. Uh, obviously, T20, the intensity is higher than the 50-over cricket or even 60-over cricket back in the day, which was the short form. So I think it's just naturally evolved. But there were still some guys back in the day who were brilliant fielders. Uh, and I, I love to watch those guys. You should read my notes because my next page says, are there just more good fielders in 2023? And I'd written down Viv, Clive Lloyd, Colin Bland <laughs> and Randall. 
So there uh, you go. Right. <laughs> they were still <laughs> exceptional fielders, though those guys. Oh, they were, yeah, and there was others as well, you know, and, and they were they were a joy to watch, you know. Uh, Derek Randall cruising around the covers, and, and obviously Clive Lloyd as well in, in his heyday. And Viv was just outstanding wherever he feel that he just had that that air of you know expectancy that he was going to do something special. Ricky Ponting, you know, I love to watch Ricky Ponting field, and yeah. Uh, there's through the generations, there's been some outstanding. We've talked about John T, who set the standards through those 90s up to the 2000s. Uh, when John Wright's Indian team won that uh, ICC event at Lords, you know, Yuv Raj and Mohammed Kaif, you know, watching those two guys field in that game. Yeah, it's exciting when you see games of cricket turned by brilliance in the field. But, you know, the expectance now is that. More of your more of your group are good fielders rather than less. You know we we're not really looking to hide anybody anymore. Whereas previously you probably thought, well, I've got three or four guys here that we don't want touching the ball too often. Whereas now, you know you you can't really have that because they get exposed. Right, I've got some questions now. The first one is from someone from Yorkshire, Dr. Jane Powell, who is the president of Yorkshire, former England cricketer, England coach as well and yep. jane you probably know jane she sent me a question that says how do you assess the effectiveness of fielders in t20 games for example we don't get any stats on how many runs that a fielder saves we just get catches and runouts oh, or or do teams like the mumbai indians actually assess how many runs each fielder has saved uh we, we do actually yeah i've i've got a quite a comprehensive uh, assessment sheet that, that I utilise that covers all the basics. So, so my basics are uh, ground fielding, uh, catching, uh, throwing accuracy, team involvement. So when they know when to join in, uh, two-man plays, three-man plays, backup plays, and, and diving and sliding. So I, I measure all those areas as the game unfolds and what what i try tend i mean some of the organizations like you maybe your quick infos and your quick buzzers and and some of these who have to i guess provide content after content you know they they do quite extensive stats as well and if somebody drops a catch then they'll maybe say if a guy goes on and gets another 30 runs and that poor guy who dropped that catch will have to carry that burden with them. I, I don't look at it like that because I don't want to punish anybody for dropping a catch because nobody drops a catch on purpose or nobody misfields on purpose. Uh, but if they do it consistently, consistently, then that becomes a coaching conversation where, you know, you can have that conversation. You can work out, well, you know, why are you consistently misfielding or why have you missed three out of the last five catches those those are conversations that can go on but you know i want my fielders to be brave i want them to be bold i want them to get as close as they feel they can to stop easy singles in the circle uh, and then yeah if we're stopping twos well that's saved one if we're diving and we're stopping a potential boundary and they only get two or a three well, that's where they save one. So I have a comprehensive sheet that then obviously becomes a game-by-game -game tally. So by the end of a series, whether it's a 10-game series or an IPL or 14-game series, it paints some amazing pictures, you know. And, and like I say, 
if there's some consistent themes that run throughout two, three, four, five games, they become coaching conversations that you have with the players at training and then work out, you know, what can we do to try and assist you become better if you need to be or more effective or more accurate if we're just missing, I guess, for example, throws at the stamps or, you know, things like that. So, yeah, my, my matrix, it's not a complicated, complicated matrix at all that I keep, but it is quite thorough. I'm happy to share that as well. I'm happy to share that with with Jane if she wants to uh, start her on. So I can assure Jane, the first female president of Yorkshire, that you are doing that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. We are anyway. Yeah. Next question. It's a question actually came from two people. Jenny Thompson, who's currently on her world cricket tour, going around the world playing cricket, and also from Catherine Bryce, who plays for Scotland, Scottish all-rounder. and. At the top level, what is the next thing we can look forward to in fielding? You know, we've seen so many developments on the boundary and all these sort of things. Is there a new thing that's going to come in? Yeah, that, that's a great question, isn't it? And that's a question that I always throw to the group that I stand in front of every new campaign because I think the players are the ones with the imaginations. You know, I've just turned 55. I'm, I'm pretty old. I'm pretty stoic. You know, my imagination, you know, was good once, one, a long time ago. So I, I always challenge the players, what do you think is going to happen next? And I always think that's the sign of a really good uh, connected player to their craft is they know what's going to happen next. Like the world-class footballer, you know, the world-class basketballer, they know where the ball's going next. That's where they move to. You know, they don't stay where the ball is. They go to where the ball's going next. And that's a question, so it's a really relevant question that I always ask every group. Where's it going next? What's the next innovation? You know, where do you want to take it? So rather than me, I guess, you know, having to tell them where I think it is, I want them to tell me or we can work through it together. So, yeah, but it's it's so exciting, isn't it, what we're watching now with, you know, the, the boundary catches especially and, and, and the multiple uh, involvement of you know groups of twos and three players so yeah it's evolved and it will continue to evolve as as long as coaches encourage imagination of the players one of the things that seems obvious now that never did you know back when i was playing and when you were playing is that you're on the boundary and the ball you realize that you can't catch the catch and it seems obvious now but oh i can't catch it but at least i'll keep it keep it on the field and save two or three runs. No one ever thought of that for hundreds of years, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, we, we've just seen so much athleticism these days. And I think that's, you know, we talked about franchise cricket and, and so much of it, you know. Uh, guys are just athletically and agility-wise, holistically, in a different league to what they were previously. So they are prepared to push those boundaries. And, yeah, and in T20 cricket, one run, two runs, generally wins a game. So every run has to be saved that we can possibly try and get to get an advantage from. Yeah, we won't, won't mention fielders on the boundary um, uh, 2019, of course, uh, a friend of yours, Trent Bolt. Uh, do you learn yeah. from other sports as well, um, like baseball and things yeah. like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I when I started to pursue fielding coach 
coaching as potentially something that would give me an opportunity to further my career. I, I tried to make sure I did as much learning as possible, and, and I did have the opportunity to spend some time with a guy called John Deeble from Queensland. He was an ex-American, uh, then living in Queensland, working with the Australian baseball program, and uh, he'd been involved in the in the American stuff. So, yeah, I learned a lot, actually, from him in terms of throwing, uh, throwing programs, throwing principles, which has stood me in good stead right up until the present day. And and I always try and, and make sure, I mean, obviously, being a footballer as well, I've had that cross-code mentality right from being a very young age. And and there is a lot to be lost to be learned from different sports. I, I was very fortunate as well is when I started to, concentrate on my fielding coaching I devised I guess the same old drills were popping up uh, time after time wherever you went everybody was doing the same old drills to just trying to stimulate a little bit more learning a little bit more enjoyment with for the players I went and devised in conjunction with a couple of very good physicians a guy called Nick Gill who's the strength and condition coach for the All Blacks and has been for a number of years now I worked closely with Nick and I worked closely with a guy called Roger Athey-Nibs, who's a very, very successful physio. He, he worked for a number of rugby organisations in the UK before he emigrated out to New Zealand. So I, I was very fortunate to spend time with those guys to devise a number of drills which would help the development physically of cricketing athletes. And uh, And then I started to share those, obviously, with players and I guess the players back then, they were a little bit like crash test dummies, but they really enjoyed them and they saw the benefits and, and all of a sudden they became more agile, they became more athletic, they could dive off both sides without the fear of injuring themselves. And then obviously the basics are the basics, you know, how we pick the ball up off the ground, how we catch the ball, how we throw the ball hasn't changed a hell of a lot, but understanding the physical, I guess, principles of doing that consistently and doing it without fear of injuring yourself is something that uh, I've got a lot of traction with and, and managed to turn out a few decent fielders in the last few years. And talking of, of, of fitness, a question for myself really is, are the players, I mean, I, I, I myself do Pilates, are, is, are things like Pilates and yoga key for all the fielders? Yeah. Oh, it definitely assists them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the more strength you can develop across the board. Uh, I mean, cricket cricket has traditionally been, you know, a game that's played by all shapes and sizes. You know, we talk about rugby, all shapes and sizes. Cricket as well. You know, there's there's some, uh, I guess, athletes playing the game that are not as fit physically, aerobically as others, but their strengths probably lie in other areas as well. So, But the more you can spend time on your fitness, the more time you can spend on your strength, then the more consistent you're going to be able to be with your skill development and then your skill performance over an extended period. That's you know that's a principle that I think stood the test of time. I've got two more short questions. Uh, first one's from James Hawksworth. Um who lives near Bristol, he goes to Manchester Met University, and he's saying that how do the top fielders train, or do they do the top top fielders train differently to the others? Some have some very clear routines. Uh, others just tick over. So I guess it depends which stage of your career 
you're at. And also as well with a lot of cricket being played, it depends at what stage you're at with your, your physical levels, whether you're a little bit fatigued. Sometimes guys come in, they're a little bit fatigued, so we have to manage their involvement, uh, especially with fielding sometimes being a third skill or a second skill. You know, if they're batsmen first, field is second, then their batting will take priority. Uh, I think, you know, the elite fielders, they have a natural athleticism about them, which then assists them to then perform the skills at a very high level. If somebody wants to train themselves to get to that point, then they have to make sure they're extremely fit because they're going to have to do all that extra work. But, you know, the, the principles, as I've said before, the basics are the basics. Uh, that doesn't change. But to the intensity and the degree that you want to work on it, you know, will determine whether you, you know, improve your skills or whether you just stay at the level that you're currently at. I've never bet anybody who couldn't improve, even the real high performers. And generally, the real high performers are the ones that are asking, what can I do? You know, and then I'll throw that back to them and then we'll have a discussion and then we'll try and, and work on something that will enhance the skills that they've already got. But it's just that thirst for knowledge and that thirst for learning, I guess, uh, is what separates those guys who I guess we consider to be the elite performers, as well as that natural athletic base. My final question then is from Paul Cullen, who has played for the Australian over 70s side. And he asks, how do the fielding drills differ between the formats, really, the T20, the ODIs and the test matches? Yeah, well, well, I think we we talked about energy already. So I think you find that the the nature of the T Twenty activities a little bit more shorter, sharper, more dynamic, uh, more throws at the stumps, more in, intensive flat catches. Uh, whereas perhaps when you're preparing for the longer formats, close catching becomes a focus, the slip cordon becomes a focus, the gully areas becomes a focus. And, and not too much, you know, of the, the high drilling, the high intensity stuff. So it's just finding that balance, uh, making sure everybody is aware of their role is something that's really important leading into a game, whether it's a test match, a 50-over game or a T20 game. It's every, if everybody's really clear on what their likely roles are throughout the stages of an innings, then you can make sure that they're getting the, the volume that they need in training that's going to replicate the situations that they're going to experience in the game. That's something that's really important because you don't want to generically just put everybody through the same drills because not everybody's going to experience the same type of uh, demands on them from a fielding point of view when the game starts. So that's quite important and it's something that you work with individuals on so that they understand that principle and then they can drive, I guess, some areas that they feel they need to work on or they would like to improve on. So obviously in a test match, you're going to have players that could be in the slips all day for a six yeah, and a half period. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's, you know, and that's why I'm a massive advocate of, of having batsmen in there because you have to concentrate for long periods. So I think naturally it, it, it sort of lends itself to batsmen as long as they've got the skills and the, the aptitude to do that. But uh, that's right. It's it's a special skill within itself to be able to concentrate for six hours and potentially grab that catch, you know, 10 minutes before the close of play. Well, thanks very much for asking, answering, answering those questions and to the listeners who sent them in. 
final topic really now what what are your plans for the future i know you're heading off to south africa probably late december early january that's right yeah that's my next uh, engagement so i'm really looking forward to that uh, as i said earlier we we didn't achieve what we wanted to achieve at that tournament last year so We've got a new head coach coming in, uh, Robbie Peterson, who's ex-South African international, very good domestic coach over there in in South Africa with the Warriors, uh, the Eastern Cape Warriors, and and was the head coach as well at the MLC in America where we had a great result. So looking forward to working with Robbie again and and hoping that MI Cape Town can uh, at least make the playoffs and and give the tournament a good shake this time. So that's where all my uh, next energies are going to be put towards so looking forward to it and you're going to be working again hopefully with Rashid Khan and Jofra Archer yes hopefully yeah those those guys are signed on and, and I see we've got Karen Pollard coming down there as well and a number of great young Englishmen as well Sam Curran's there and Liam Livingston and Ollie Stone's coming back so yeah really looking forward to getting back with those guys and like I say just performing with a little bit more uh, credibility than what we did last year where we had a tough season would you ever like to work in international cricket? Uh, occasionally, I, I pop back into the Black Caps program. Uh, in recent years, I've gone in with with something special in mind, whether it, leading into the 2019 campaign, it was with uh, assisting the guys with their diving uh, techniques. And, and I've done a little bit of work in 2021 as well and a couple of tours to to India and then helped them back here as well with a couple of test matches. So I'm always available if my if my calendar allows it and, and it works in with my Mumbai Indians commitment. Uh, yeah, I always enjoy especially working with the New Zealand team. So I'm not the sort of guy who's I'm not looking for the next appointment and scanning the situation vacant pages, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed at the moment with the role that I've got. I thoroughly enjoy it. I think I'm helping some players to get better as well, and and, and that's really important to me. So, yeah, if if the time came where you know Mumbai no longer required my services with any of their franchises, then I'd have a look at some other opportunities. But uh, I'm really happy at the moment, and yeah, contented. Well, at the moment, you're probably uh, the fielding coach of the most famous. Uh team in the world <laughs> well i mean we are one of the most famous and most recognizable i think chennai chennai super kings as well will probably lay claim to that uh, that title as well they're a they're a very famous very successful organization but yeah i guess for a for a young guy who, who sort of learned his cricket coming out of emily and in Huddersfield, it's it's not a bad little journey certainly not uh thank you very much james for talking about your journey and i hope you have a successful sat 20 and ipl in 2024 and thanks very much for being on the paddock and the pavilion oh it's been a pleasure like i said at the start it's nice to make your acquaintance and and thank you to those guys for sending those questions through it's always nice to be able to to engage with them and like i say i'm i'm an open book so if, if any of those people would like to to learn a little bit more uh, i'm more than happy to share I guess, some of the detail that comes in behind uh, the comments that we've made there. Well, thank you very much for that. And I hope one day to go back to Mount Monganui to uh, see England play a test match and hopefully next time win the game. Well, yeah, it's a tough tough job beating New Zealand in uh, in Mount Monganui. The players enjoy playing here. But, 
you can be forever hopeful. And it'd be nice to walk up the mountain with you and have a beer when you come down. Thank you very much. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.